now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. And I'm your host, Robert McClure. In tonight's news, the Madison Common Council approves its 2024 spending plan in a whirlwind meeting. Advocates call for an end to prison lockdowns at multiple Wisconsin prisons as Governor Evers announces an easing. Singer-songwriter Liz Fair shares more details about her 1993 debut album, Exile in Guyville. And in the second half, a hairstylist shares how she got into her line of work. The most in-depth weather report hits your airwaves. And Madison in the 60s has the headlines from November of 1968. Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Lawmakers in Washington, D.C. are set to approve a short-term bill to fund the government for the next few months, leaving the fight over the nation's budget and a possible shutdown until after the holidays. The House passed the continuing resolution last night with 209 Democrats helping Republicans from across the aisle to advance the bill. Still, 93 Republican representatives, including two from Wisconsin, voted against the bill. Representative Tom Tiffany of Wisconsin's 7th District voted against the continuing resolution. He characterized it to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel last night as a continuation of the status quo. Representative Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin's 8th District compared the use of continuing resolutions to the movie Groundhog Day. The U.S. Senate is slated to take up a vote tonight, though no word yet on when that will be. As of the last update from NBC News, Republican Senator Roger Wick of Mississippi has a hold on the bill. Sources say he wants a Senate Majority Leader, uh, Chuck Schumer of New York, to set a date to vote on the National Defense Authorization Act. They have until the end of Friday to avoid a government shutdown. The Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, a conservative legal firm, is urging the state Supreme Court not to take up a case involving school choice. The lawsuit was filed directly with the Wisconsin Supreme Court two months ago, just after the state court's majority flipped from conservative to liberal. Funded by a liberal super PAC, the lawsuit seeks to ask the state's top court to declare the state's school choice programs as unconstitutional. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and two of Governor Governor Tony Evers' cabinet secretaries are named in the suit. Meanwhile, Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, the state's largest business body, has filed an additional brief in the case. That asks the Supreme Court to reject the petition and let the case proceed through lower courts first. Advocacy groups are pushing for hospitals to do more to train caregivers on at-home medical care after their loved one is discharged from the hospital. At a press conference yesterday organized by aging advocates, including the AARP and Wisconsin Aging Advocacy Network, People described cases where caregivers caregivers hadn't been adequately prepared or informed by a hospital to care for their loved ones at home. And that can include everything from new medicine regimens to wound care to new doctor-ordered diets. 
And advocates are pushing for lawmakers to write a bill that would require hospitals train family members and other caregivers on a patient's discharge, reports the Wisconsin Examiner. Legislation along those lines was last introduced in 2019, but failed to pass out of committee. It was largely opposed by the Wisconsin Hospital Association and other groups representing hospitals who say the legislation would just add more red tape. The bill hasn't been reintroduced since, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The project to consolidate the Dane County Jail is again over budget, according to Mirren Construction, the one contractor to bid on the project. That estimate, released yesterday, put the final cost at more than $161 million. That's more than $27 million above what the Dane County Board has agreed to set aside for construction. In a statement today, Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett promised to continue exploring solutions to keep the project on schedule, urging collaboration by Dane County leadership. Sheriff Barrett has been outspoken about the jail's current conditions, calling it unsafe to the people incarcerated and, quote, borderline unconstitutional. Meanwhile, Dane County leaders have announced a proposal to distribute more of its federal funds to food pantries. At a press conference earlier today, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi urged the extra $1.7 million in extra dollars for food pantries ahead of a busy holiday season. The funding would come from unallocated federal pandemic aid, and it comes on top of the $4.5 million recently approved in the 2024 county budget. It also comes as demand for food assistance is surging, as households struggle with the rising cost of food. The proposal is slated to be introduced at tomorrow's Dane County Board meeting and is expected to be taken up by supervisors in the next few weeks. And just because it's evidently impossible to have enough student housing in this town, a city committee has given initial approval for yet another apartment tower for student housing in downtown Madison, reports the Capital Times. At a meeting earlier this week, the Madison Plan Commission signed off on the Johnson Broom proposal from developer Core Spaces. Under the proposal, the housing tower would add 465 units targeted at student housing and could range from 8 to 15 stories tall. The commission also signed off on a demolition permit for the current buildings on the space. The proposal heads to the city council next Tuesday. And those are the headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Madison leaders have approved the city's budgets for 2024 in speedy fashion, signing off on spending in just one meeting rather than the several scheduled for this week. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the details. At last night's Common Council meeting, city alders deliberated for over six hours over spending for 2024. The final product? A capital budget that totals just over $273 million and an operating budget that totals just over $405 million. It's the first time in 18 years that the council managed to approve both budgets in a single night, reports the Capital Times. The council sped through numerous amendments to the capital budget with unanimous approval. They voted to allocate $1.5 million to the permanent men's shelter on the east side and $45,000 to update key scanning at two public libraries. They also approved $300,000 to purchase new vehicles for Madison's growing crisis response program, CARES, after the program's old vehicles had been deemed no longer drivable. 
Alder Isidore Knox Jr. of South Madison was the lone alder in favor of an amendment to defer construction on the Autumn Ridge bike path, which could eventually connect two major bicycle thoroughfares, the Garver Path and the Capital City Trail. But putting that construction on hold for future years would have jeopardized federal funds, says city engineer Jim Wolfe. That amendment ultimately only received one vote from its sponsor, Alder Knox. The project is set to proceed as scheduled in 2024 and will include a new multi-use path and a bridge over Highway 30. Meanwhile, the city's 2024 operating budget saw slightly more back and forth. It's the largest operating budget in Madison's history and exceeds the 2023 operating budget by almost $23 million. Council members had a number of questions for Norman Davis, the civil rights director, as his division asked for the funds to hire an equal opportunities investigator. A similar proposal ultimately did not make it into the city's 2023 budget. Davis says that his division currently has 49 cases in mediation. Historically, about 50% of those cases get settled in mediation, and the other half would go into uh, investigation. The Equal Opportunities Investigator would handle the cases that are not settled. Alder Regina Vitiver of Madison's Westside voted against funding the position, saying, I think of this phrase, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. This position is a response position, and it's a critically important response position. But the reason I'm not going to vote for it tonight is because I believe that when we prioritize, we need to prioritize prevention. But the council ultimately approved $82,500 to fund the position. Council members also spent over an hour discussing an amendment to fund a traffic electrician position instead of a citywide information officer housed in the mayor's office. The council ultimately agreed to fund the electrician. However, a floor amendment introduced later in the meeting set aside the city's remaining tax levy funds to hire a public information officer anyway. Only Alders Knox, Barbara Harrington McKinney of the Far West Side, and Nazra Waheli of Southwest Madison voted against that resolution. Alders Knox and Harrington McKinney also voted against the city's general tax levy and both budgets. Here's the city's finance director, Dave Schmidicke. There is nothing left. (laughs) Though both budgets are approved, the budget process is only likely to get more frustrating next year as the city continues to grapple with funding challenges and an increasing share of the budget spent paying debt, which could point to a fiscal cliff as soon as 2025. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway has repeatedly emphasized that the city is doing more with less with a legislature that provides Madison with less than its fair due of direct support and shared revenue, and minimal ways to seek other revenue sources. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. This morning, about 40 prison reform advocates and family members of inmates gathered at the Department of Corrections headquarters in Madison. They were there to demand that further steps be taken toward assuring the safety of the inmates and to end the almost nine-month lockdown at two Wisconsin prisons, even as the governor had promised a, quote, easing of those conditions. Our reporter, Gigi Royko Maurer, filed this report. Families are suffering. The community is suffering. There's ways to accomplish these goals other than providing us with a bunch of cloaked rhetoric when you've already had policies and procedures in place to address these issues. That was James Morgan, the community organizer for Moses Madison, a chapter of the Wisdom Organization. 
Yesterday, Governor Evers announced that the lockdowns on Wisconsin prisons are to be eased and that efforts will be made to address the understaffing and vacancy issues at the prisons. Two of Wisconsin's oldest and most understaffed prisons, Waupon and Green Bay, have been in lockdown since March and June. Since then, multiple inmate deaths have occurred at both prisons in the last four months, including three deaths at Waupon, one being a suicide, and two deaths at Green Bay, both being suicides. James Wilbur, Prison Outreach Director for Wisdom, the statewide prison reform organization, says the state can alleviate the current prison overcrowding by making policy changes that have already been promised. He says too many inmates on parole are being sent back to prison not for committing crimes, but for violating the rules of their parole, which is what prison reform advocates call crimeless revocation. There are thousands of men and women who are currently incarcerated who are there for crimeless revocations. Yet the Department of Corrections refuses to implement strategies to create alternative options for these men and women to be returned to their communities. If we single-handedly eliminated incarceration for crimeless revocations, we could close down two prisons. What we also know is that the Department of Corrections continues to advance a relatively false narrative about the crisis that they're facing with staffing, about the resources that they have available. Yet we know that the Department of Corrections spends less than about 3% of its biennial $1.6 billion budget to implement treatment alternative and diversion programs. What is the explanation for that? We have men and women who are incarcerated and we know that they are facing crisis conditions. We have repeatedly received reports of physical abuse, of lack of health care. We also know that a civil action was just filed by Attorney Story, where incarcerated individuals are receiving reports saying, oh, well, why don't you just pray to be cured? Those are the kind of responses that we're receiving from the Department of Corrections, who is statutorily required to provide for the care, treatment, and rehabilitation of incarcerated people. This is completely unacceptable. There is no reason whatsoever that the Department of Corrections can not take meaningful action now. Now! Following the rally, Wilbur and other protesters tried to meet with the Department of Corrections Secretary, Kevin Carr, but were told he was not available. They delivered a list of questions about the current lockdown and demanded for it to be ended as soon as possible. For WORT News, I'm Gigi Royko Mauer. Thanks to WORT volunteer Gil Halstead for gathering audio for this story. In the lockdown. In the lockdown. In the lockdown. The time is now 6.20 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This June marked the 30th anniversary of Exile in Guyville, released by Matador Records in 1993. It was the debut album from indie rocker Liz Fair and pushed back against rock tropes present in the male-dominated rock world at that time. Now, Liz Fair is on tour, performing Exile in Guyville in its entirety. She'll stop in Madison in exactly one month. WORT's Helena White sat down with Fair a few weeks ago. 
Here's the second part of their interview. Liz Fair blew up the Chicago indie music scene in 1993 when she released her debut double album, Exile in Guyville. Met with critical acclaim and listed at number 56 on Rolling Stone's 500 Best Albums, Guyville was a bold and innovative explosion of songs chronicling and critiquing Fair's experiences in the male-dominated Chicago rock scene. Now Fair is celebrating the 30th anniversary of Exile in Guyville with a U.S. tour. She'll be coming to the Sylvie here in Madison on Friday, December 8th. In September, I had a chance to talk to Liz Fair, and I asked her what it was like to record and produce Exile in Guyville in Wicker Park at Idful Studios with music producer and drummer Brad Wood. Well, it was a really fun and slow process. We started and stopped frequently because Brad had to fit me in between other bands that could pay more. You know, I was on a shoestring budget. So I kind of came in whenever somebody canceled or he had a free night. He really wanted to work on it, but we kind of had to start and stop, which suited me perfectly. Like that is exactly how I like to work on big projects. I need to put some stuff down and I need to go away and think about it. And then I need to come back in and do stuff to it. Like I'm a slow artist in a way, but I'm a very detailed artist. So it, it was a very fun. We had a good time. We laughed a lot. We were experimental. I think we all just enjoyed it. And once Exile in Guyville was released in 1993, how did things go for Liz Fair? In my real life, not very well. The indie rock community in Wicker Park was suddenly very divided about me, almost instantly. Some people felt that I didn't deserve this and I hadn't been working in that scene for as long as they had, or that the fact that I used sexuality in lyrics, I used my sexuality to get attention. And then other people were vehemently defending me. And then, of course, where I grew up, up in the suburbs, they were just completely shocked and had no idea that I wrote music or performed it and could not believe the kind of lyrics that I had put on my record. So I pretty much got in trouble with everybody in my entire life. So while I was being nationally recognized and getting accolades and applause in my personal life, everything had just fallen apart. And for the record, your lyrics are hardly that racy compared to what men will produce in their songs. Well, that's what I thought. I mean, that was what the mandate of rock and roll kind of is, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I just thought women hadn't played that role yet. I felt like they always were the femme fatale or the person who would talk about emotional stuff, but they hadn't swaggered as much as they should. Obviously, some did, and the people that I looked to, like Chrissy Hind and Patty Smith, were people that I resonated with. Like, it just felt like that swagger could be ours as well. I believe in humanness. I guess I'm a humanist. He's just a hero in a long line of heroes Looking for something attractive to save 
They say he rode in on the back of a pickup And he won't leave town, do you remember his name? There were people who supported Liz Fair and many women in whom she found inspiration. Janet Bean was someone. From the bands Freak Water and 11th Day Dream. They were very popular, and she certainly was a driving force. I think I was looking at a lot of the young women in the Riot Girl movement in Olympia, Washington, and certainly there were always, like, women in bands, but I'm trying to think, like, Blake Babies, Juliana Hatfield, Ellie, Hole, like, Courtney Love, and definitely PJ Harvey was someone I was aware of. That kind of stuff back then. And how did the music industry treat Fair? All sorts of ways. Some people were really cool to me and respectful, and some people tried to exploit me instantly for the sexual nature of my lyrics. And a lot of photo shoots tried to strip me down nude and have me sit in positions where it was all about sex or writers would just put in a headline like blowjob queen. And that's, you know, how 18 songs about many, many topics had been reduced just to blowjob queen. And it was a mixed bag. I was certainly thrown into the deep end very quickly. And I really had just tried to impress about a dozen people in my neighborhood. And I wasn't prepared. I'd never performed on stage. My record came out before I had any experience on stage as a performer at all. So it was an awkward learning curve. I told Liz Fair about Girls Rock Camp, a summer camp where adolescent girls get a chance to play in their own rock band. By the end of the camp, they perform a song they have written together. I asked her what advice she would give to these young women rockers. Keep a journal. And also, if you're talking about being unsafe, this is not what I mean. Do not jeopardize your safety. But if it's, if it's just emotional fear because you're afraid of being seen or being inadequate, don't let that stop you, ever. Just keep taking your shot because no one is going to hand you your dream. You're going to have to walk there like Frodo has to take the ring to Mordor. You're just not going to be comfortable, but you just got to go. What advice do you have for adult women on the music scene? Pill of the Blue Pill and the Matrix. Oh, I haven't seen the Matrix. I'm sorry, I haven't seen it. Well, take the pill that shows you reality, because I think adult women can get so lost in the roles that they play, and they can forget that they have one life, and that their dreams are just as valid, and they're maybe 10, 20 years behind where they thought they would be. But starting now is better than never starting at all.
That was Liz Fair talking about her groundbreaking album Exile in Guyville. To celebrate the 30th anniversary of the album's release, Liz Fair will perform Guyville in its entirety for the last time during her U.S. tour. Liz Fair will be at the Sylvie in Madison on Friday, December 8th. A special thank you to Sybil Augustine for arranging this interview. For WORT 89.9 FM, this is Helena White. Thirty-two now, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. On this week's edition of Madison's Backbone, feature contributor Riley Cutright interviews Megan, a professional hairstylist. They discuss what drew Megan to her job, one that requires both science and artistry. They know that when they come to the salon, that no matter who does their hair, they're going to have a great result. A community is a unified body of individuals sharing something in common. Over a quarter of a million people call Madison, Wisconsin their home. Have you ever wondered about the secret to Madison's vibrant and unique community? Well, I have the answer for you. Workers. This segment features the working voices who undeniably strengthen and brighten Madison's community on the daily. I am Riley Cutright, and this is Madison's Backbone. An abundance of things can boost self-confidence. A fresh cut, buzz, or color may just be the right thing to hone in your personal style. Hairstylists are the people that you trust to bring all of your hair-related desires to life, whether you're just getting a trim or if you're finally getting that split-dyed mullet you've always wanted. Today, I'm interviewing Megan, a professional hairstylist, about the many paths one can take to be on the other side of the chair helping people feel more like themselves. It took me a while, I think, to arrive at the conclusion to become a hairstylist. I think that a lot of people in our industry, I hear them say that they kind of just have always known that it's something they wanted to do. But when I was younger, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I've always loved things related to hair and I've just kind of like grown up doing stuff with my own hair and like... I had sisters and I was always in like theater and sports and um, we always had, you know, hair related things to do with that. And when I was a teenager, like me and my friends would always like do crazy like colors and cuts on each other's hair. And it was like early, mid 2010s. So like the scene hair and everything was big and we would just do a lot of experimentation. But I actually went to school for art originally and just really did not have any direction that I knew I wanted to go into. Um, And it wasn't until like a few years after I graduated with my bachelor's degree that I decided to go back to school to pursue hair. I think it really just started with somebody put a little a little notion in my in my head of like, hey, have you considered this? It might be something that you might be interested in. 
And I was like, oh, I hadn't really thought about that. And I just, you know, kind of did the thing where you binge watch YouTube videos on like, what is this career? Like, <laughs> what do you have to do to get there? And like, what does that mean? What does day to day look like? And I was like, you know, this actually does sound like something I would like. And then the more that I kind of like practiced some of these things that I was interested in, I was like, a lot of this is really familiar to me and just feels really comfortable. So I spent a lot of time kind of preparing myself and deciding if, you know, it was the right choice and ultimately did end up going back to school for it. And here we are. What kind of education do you have? You mentioned that you went back to school, but is there like a specific degree or certificate that you have? Are you licensed? There's a couple different routes you can go if you want to do hair professionally. You do need a license, but the route that I took was I went back to school and you have to fulfill a certain amount of hours in school before you can apply for your license. Um, and that's kind of its own whole process. Basically, like the school route that I went is a little bit more, I would say, expedited than like if you think of an apprenticeship route where it looks a lot different. It's a little bit different of a process, but the end result result um, is after you get all of your hours in your specific scenario that's required by the state, then you apply for your license and you have to take some exams for that as well. The experience, I think, is going to be vastly different for everybody, kind of just depending on where you go and what your experience is like. I think that it's really hard to speak for everybody. There's so many different roads you can take, but that's what I did. (laughs) What hours of the day do you work? Um, myself personally, I most of the days that I work, I go in kind of around lunchtime and then end up working until 8 p.m. or so. I do have one day during the week where I go in a little earlier, but it's not till 9.30 and then I, I work until afternoon, evening. I think a lot of us find ourselves working kind of like later in the day, kind of just to be available for when people get off of work or a lot of people work on the weekends too. I know that you kind of outlined that you go in around noon and work until eight. Are these like typical eight hour shifts? Do you find yourself working longer or less time depending on how busy you are or how many clients you have? Yeah, right now um, I have a pretty set schedule. So most of the days that I go in, I'm there for eight hours. And do people usually seek you out as an individual stylist or are people looking for location? Often when you get clients, you find them being like, oh, I followed you on Instagram or I followed you on this or I saw that you had an advertisement. I don't really know how the side of marketing works for yourself because I hairstylists tend to be like very independent advocators for themselves. So for myself personally, I am still pretty early in my career. I am not really to the point where I've built any kind of reputation or name for myself yet, but um, the salon that I'm at does have very excellent reputation, and I think that that goes a long way for kind of attracting clients because they know that when they come to the salon that no matter who does their hair, they're going to have a great result. What is the most difficult part about your job? I feel like there's not really any part of my job that I feel is super difficult. I think that every now and then I'll have challenges, but they're not really like, oh, this is a difficulty. It's more like, oh, I have a challenge. It's kind of like a puzzle to solve. What kind of challenges do you encounter? Usually it's more related to um, kind of like atypical situations. So like when people come in with their hair is in a certain condition and you want to try to get them the result they want, but maybe it's not going to be as easy of a road as they maybe 
think or would like it to be and not as easy as I would like it to be <laughs> um, because, you know, a lot of people's hair it has a history and there's certain things that aren't achievable if your hair has been through certain things or it's achievable, but it's going to be, you know, kind of a lot more work due to the hair history, which I know sounds super vague, but I guess those situations can be definitely challenging. Like if somebody comes in, they have like super, super dark dye on their hair and they want it to be, you know, dramatically lighter. If they're only booked for a certain amount of time, we might have to be like, oh, like we can't even do this today in this amount of time. Or like this is not going to be a simple process because there's so many more steps that go into it to get you from point A to point B and also like your hair might not be able to get from point A to point B and it's I think there's a lot of um, science involved in especially hair coloring that not everybody realizes how much science goes into it. Can you describe exactly like what you do as a hairstylist? Normally I'll get to work and kind of look at my schedule. Usually I work I look at my schedule the night before so I kind of know what the next day is going to look like. At our salon we double book, which means that um, if you have a color client, they're going to have a processing time for their color. That's usually about 45 minutes and during that time it's most likely a haircut because most of our haircuts are 45 minutes. So I'll look at my day, you know, I'll, I'll usually have one to three colors during the day and then the rest of the day is kind of just filled in with haircuts. So I, I get to work a little bit early before everything starts, get my station cleaned up and get everything set up, get, make sure I have all my supplies I need for the day and then um, go get my first client and then I'm just rolling from there <laughs> and just one after another, you know, we'll do a haircut maybe start a color, do another haircut, and just kind of move through the appointments. Your clients walk out as a different person than how they walked in. Yeah, we're really focused on um, doing a thorough consultation, too, at the beginning of the service, so that's really important. We try to really understand um, kind of where the client's at, how they're feeling about their hair and its current condition, and kind of what their goals are. And at least when I'm doing my consultation, I try to really, really try to listen to um, what they're wanting and think about like what's achievable for their specific hair type because there's so many different kinds of hair and like there's so many, so many factors that can make your hair, you know, respond differently to different things or like everybody's hair kind of has different needs and everything's so specialized. So we really try to like customize everything for the individual and try to communicate with them so that we can get them the best results they leave hopefully happy yeah. <laughs> having, having the, the hair that they want. Thanks for tuning in to the 6 p.m. local news to hear Madison's backbone. Not quite convinced to make a complete career shift to being a hairstylist? Don't worry, we have even more details coming at you for the next episode because I'm doing a part two with Megan. So tune in in two weeks to hear part two of what it takes to be a hairstylist. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. 
Well, we finally cracked 60 degrees today after getting stuck in the upper 50s both Monday and yesterday. Uh, meager vertical mixing was part of the reason for that, especially yesterday when uh, passing high clouds also deflected uh, just a little extra warmth that we had uh, from what was already a low sun angle this time of year. And just to give you an idea of the importance of this boundary layer mixing, as we call it, uh, to daytime temperatures, atmospheric models indicated that we mixed from the surface up to about 1,800 or 2,000 feet this afternoon when we reached our 62-degree high temperature for the day. Had that uh, mixing gone another 1,000 feet or so, up to 3,000 feet, the high temperature would have been closer to 70. Uh, such a potentially warmer layer of air is often sitting close by us overhead, even in winter like this, but uh, it's especially difficult this time of year during our lowest light period to generate the upward and downward motions that are necessary to mix that air earthward, at least simply through uh, surface heating. Uh, horizontal winds, though, are another matter. Those also mix the atmosphere. Uh, we're familiar with the fact that winds can keep the temperatures warmer overnight when they're blowing, and often they do the same thing during the day uh, if they're strong enough. As they will be tomorrow, uh, deeper mixing along with uh, what will be slightly warmer temperatures aloft tomorrow indeed may take us up to the mid-60s, at least if uh, thickening cloud cover doesn't get in the way in the afternoon. Uh, we should remember, though, too, that the warm air that's above us currently is actually uh, quite warm for this time of year, and appropriately so, and the, that the temperatures uh, up at two or 3,000 feet above us are going to drop substantially uh, overnight going into Friday morning, a good 20 or 20, uh, 25, 30 degrees uh, to a level that's uh, much more fitting for the third week of November. And, of course, that uh, cooling up there is going to also translate to ground levels we get on to Friday morning. Uh, if you have a look at the water vapor image of North America that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening, uh, well, you might find it difficult to pick out just where the cold air that's coming at us is located currently, uh, but that's in part due to just how rapidly systems are currently trekking eastward in the zonal branch of the jet stream that's crossing the continent up at our latitude here. Uh, just as a measure of that, if you're looking at that image, you can see a little upper trough comes zipping past Wisconsin today. It comes almost halfway across the country uh, here and just to our north. Uh, that may surprise you since it had almost no impact on us. It, uh, it was the upper-level manifestation, basically, of an incoming surface high-pressure cell that uh, veered yesterday's southerly winds more westerly today, though uh, the winds overall were quite light under the uh, passing high. Uh, way out to the northwest, though, just diving past the Puget Sound uh, currently is the narrow little upper trough that will have a, an accompanying push of colder air, uh, which will come streaking across the northern states tomorrow, rapidly developing a surface low-pressure circulation in front of it. That will suck some warmer air from the southern plains northeastward into it, along with uh, whatever moisture is available. Uh, but you might note that moisture from the Gulf of Mexico, for its part, is currently uh, tied up in the system down there in the passing subtropical jet, so we're likely to see nothing but cloud cover marking the transition to colder air tomorrow night. As I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast, temperatures will uh, moderate fairly quickly behind this cold front as we go into the weekend, so we'll be back uh, at least above seasonal normals, so not hugely warmer, but back in the upper 40s, maybe 50 over the weekend. Uh, and we'll see a, a storm system passing around Monday night or Tuesday of next week. 
Uh, still no great consensus on impacts on that on all the longer range models, but uh, all of them are closing in on a surface circulation track that will uh, run roughly up through about central Illinois into northern Indiana or thereabouts as we get on towards later Tuesday. So uh, in any event, that augurs a kind of cold, windy, damp feeling period as we get out in the first couple of days of next week, and if, even if we manage to skirt the precipitation shield with the storm. Uh, and it's looking increasingly uh, cold as we get further out in the forecast period uh, later next week and beyond as well. So we'll see if that trend uh, holds in future forecasts. But back to tonight for uh, the specific details. Passing high clouds will, uh, uh, and slowly increasing southerly winds coming up to 48 miles per hour will generally stop temperatures falling too much past uh, the low 40s. Tomorrow, steadily strengthening southwesterly winds coming up to 12 to 20 miles per hour by the afternoon with uh, gusts up towards uh, 40 or at least up in the 30 mile per hour range. We'll take temperatures to the low 60s, I think, in any case, and possibly 64 or 65 if the high clouds don't thicken up too much, uh, which they will otherwise be doing as we go through the day. The cold frontal passage looks to occur in Madison uh, just around midnight, perhaps shortly before that, after which winds will be veering west and northwest and starting temperatures dropping from what will still be the upper 50s or low 60s, even at that point in the evening, uh, down to the upper 30s or around 40 by daybreak, so quite the temperature drop. Uh, overnight cloudiness will uh, scatter eastward Friday morning and temperatures will recover that day only I think a few degrees up to maybe the low 40s on north-northwesterly winds at uh, 10 to 18 miles per hour. Temperatures will drop into the upper 20s as we go overnight on lighter winds backing more westerly at 3 to 6 miles per hour. And Saturday are gen will generally be sunny with temperatures recovering perhaps to 50 or at least to the upper 40s on southwesterly winds at 8 to 12 miles per hour. Uh, we'll see a similar day on Sunday after lows around 30 during the overnight with some increase in high and mid-level clouds then as we get later in the day Sunday and the early week system to our southwest starts to approach and that may have us wet already as we get into Monday. At the moment at the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 48 degrees. The dew point temperature is 36. Uh, winds have been very light the last couple of hours, light and variable, almost calm. Uh, we have just a few passing strands of cirrus and an otherwise clear sky, and uh, the barometer's been rising slowly now at 30.15 inches of mercury. It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to late November 1968, when the campus and football team were torn asunder by racial tension. Stu Levitan has the disturbing news from 55 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s.
Madison in the 60s, late November 1968, racial tensions. On Saturday the 16th, university police arrest a black non-student, Terence Kalnack, in the Ratskeller after he gets into a shouting match and threatens an elderly female worker whom he says used a racial epithet when he complained about the portion of ice cream she served and refused to pay for it. The arrest gets physical as four officers wrestle with Kalnack and handcuff him. He's charged with disorderly conduct, resisting arrest, and battery. The Wisconsin Student Association pays half of Kalnack's $500 bail. On the 19th, students protesting Kalnack's arrest stage a noisy eight-hour picket and boycott of the Ratskeller. Although the picketers don't physically obstruct business, protesters with drums and bullhorn create such a ruckus that Union Director Ted Crabb closes the rat's serving lines over dinner, cutting the day's revenue by two-thirds. Over the next few days, Students for a Democratic Society and the Wisconsin Draft Resistance Union run a liberation food service across the hall, providing free sandwiches, chili, and more food, quote, without the bitter salts of racial epithets. Students demand call next freedom, student control of a police-free union, and the opening of the union to non-students. The free food ends by order of the university health sanitarian, the boycott doesn't survive the Thanksgiving break. There are no incidents or arrests and no satisfaction on the part of the protesters after their action. On the 25th and 26th, the Monday and Tuesday of Thanksgiving week, black students stage a series of brief disruptions during the afternoon and evening in support of their demands to double the current black student population of 500, put black students on admissions committees, and paying black students to attend a summer program for basic skills in writing and math. They're also supporting 91 black students recently expelled from Oshkosh State University. They interrupt classes in several buildings, put pepper in the library's ventilation system, and chant Oshkosh Hey while moving books around, hamper traffic on State Street, and turn in false fire alarms. The action is organized by the Wapindusi Wayuzi, Swahili, more or less, for Black Agitator, a closed and confidential black leadership group formed to frustrate police surveillance and infiltration. Campus Police Chief Ralph Hansen says that the disruptions do not rise to the level of acts prohibited by the rules the regents recently enacted. Meanwhile, racial tensions are exploding at Camp Randall, deepening the woes of a winless football team. On November 20th, black track star Ray Arrington, student member of the athletic board, meets privately with the board to convey a series of grievances the black football players hold, including a lack of rapport with coaches, the need for academic counseling for athletes, and the status of athletes whose eligibility ends before they receive their degrees. And there's a very personal matter. Coach John Cota's mandate to black players that they not date white women. Insulted, the black players ignore the directive with impunity, leading to resentment from white players and coaches. White players also get most, though not all, of the easy jobs with a trucking company owned by Cota's father-in-law, former Mayor Henry Reynolds. More black players work on the line at Oscar Mayer. The black players are also upset that quarterback Lou Richardson, son of the team's only black coach, was benched in favor of a white player, and they want several assistant coaches fired, or at least reviewed. 
The athletic board chair, Professor Frederick Haberman, says the board takes the concerns seriously and promises, quote, honorable, peaceful, and fruitful negotiations after Thanksgiving break. In late November, 18 of the 26 black players boycott the team banquet at the Fieldhouse. This is just a football thing, one boycotter says, not a general protest against the university administration. The next day, white linebacker Ken Kreider, the team's MVP, says racial tension is, quote, definitely part of the reason the Badgers have lost their last 15 games with an 0-19-1 record in the two years since Coach Milt Brune was forced out and Coda hired. Another white defensive player, Tom McCauley, says, quote, there are guys who should have been kicked off the team, but were not because they are black. They are the ones who discriminated against us. On December 3rd, Athletic Director Ivan Williamson and the Athletic Board hold a lengthy closed-door session with the black players, whose complaints are more about disrespect than overt racial discrimination. And the next day, about 40 white players, almost all the whites on the team, meet with the board to share their perspective. They agree with some of the black players' concerns, but are, quote, strongly supportive of the coaching staff. Double-barreled bad news is delivered on Thursday the 5th at a special joint meeting of the Regents and the Athletic Board. First, news of the $250,000 deficit the winless football team has caused the Athletic Department. Then comes the stunning race-based resignation by popular assistant coach Gene Felker, star end of the 1951 Big Ten Championship Badgers, in protest of the administration's, quote, policies of handling the student unrest on this campus, as well as the handling of the football situation. Black players, quote, committed treason against the coaching staff, and the ringleaders must be fired, Felker says in a lengthy statement to the boards. The one-time Green Bay Packer also blasts, quote, the frightened administrators who will not take a firm stand, but would rather try to appease the minority groups on this campus. White coaches have not had an equal opportunity at this institution to succeed, Felker charges, noting that black assistant coach Richardson has a five-year employment agreement directly with President Fred Harvey Harrington, while Coda has a three-year contract and all his other assistants have only one-year guarantees. On December 6th, the regents call in Coda and pledge their, quote, complete cooperation in helping him return the Badgers to being competitive in Big Ten football. He's got one year left on his contract to do so. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-sponsored WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter this evening was Gigi Royko Maurer with an assist from Gil Halstead. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Riley Cutright and Stu Levitan. And a big welcome to our new engineer, Katie Gergella, who mixed our sounds live on air. Faye Parks produced the newscast, and Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.
You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison.